541-1741. Call Gulfstream Motorsports for a diminished value report. Due to my 28 years experience in the auto salvage business, I'm very good with wrecks. So if your car has been involved in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for the lost value of your repaired vehicle. And visit us at GulfstreamMotorsports.com. Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork, or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friend, Corey, at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. Welcome back, talking with Tim Allen. I see you're building a hot rod on your show. Yeah, we're building a 30, uh, 33. 33, 33 hot rod on the show. Now, you're a big car guy. Oh, yeah. Yeah? You grew up in, you grew up in Detroit, right? In Detroit. Right? That's where they built her. Right, right. So, hey, cool. Do a lot of street racing and stuff when you were a kid? Me? No. Uh, no. No? Never did? <laughs> like, what did you used to when you had a car? What was, like, the coolest thing? Well, I'd say when street racing actually was Woodward Avenue. Yeah, Woodward Avenue. I knew Woodward Avenue. Oh, yeah. Mopar. Mopar? We were manufacturers kids. Yeah. So the, the manufacturers always come back with these huge, big blocks. Of, oh, yeah, what's uh, Tommy running over there? Well, his dad gave him, a, you know, that AMC. AMC used to make some really hip cars. But they put these big... See where it got them, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you get the feeling they're staring at you. Does this bother you at all, so like, Jay? Um, like burning rubber? Was that like the big deal? Burning rubber? That, like in high school, that was a cool thing. Like Well, lay, now, lay patch. jungle patching was cool. Yeah. You know, go on somebody's lawn and make donuts. Don't tear up the lawn. Oh, oh yeah. That was good. That, that was really good. bothered my parents. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, laying patches was a big deal in the high school park. So what's, like, the longest patch of rubber you ever laid in your car? You sure? Yeah. I, uh, I didn't measure it, but I think I was pretty good. About 50 feet, something like that. 50? Yeah. <laughs> See, I must have gone 60, 70 feet. That would be kind of impossible, Jay. 50's like a really big deal. No, 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 no. 60, 70 feet would be about right. I don't think you can do 60 feet. I can do 60 feet right now. Well, you're working right now, so this would no, be... No, We can go out in the parking lot. Did you bring a car today? Did you drive a car? This is really inappropriate. Well, I... You parked out front. We should race. You want to race right now? I got my wife's... Should... You have your wife's car? That's perfect. That's perfect. Because I brought my wife's car. My car's in the shop. I brought my wife's car. You brought your wife's car. We both have our wife's car. Right. Serious business. Yes, we should race. Well? Okay. Unless, all right, come on. We'll go out, we'll out in the party lot. Watch on your monitors. Follow me. You're serious? Yeah. When was the last time you laid a strip of rubber? Oh, about 20 years ago. 20 years ago. All right, perfect. Follow me. We'll go out here. The car's right outside. In fact, I had your friend bring your car right around. Come on. So come my car's here. here. Car's here. Is it one of these? No, 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 no. Over here. Which one? You. I saw you drive my wife's car. Now, wait a minute. I brought my wife's car. That's what you said, but... Oh, right. Right. This is your wife's car? This is my wife's car. This is not a wife... Now, this is my wife's car. This is not your wife's... 
Really? You take the baby in this thing? There's a baby seat in this. I told you, my wife's car. All right, look, we'll see. We'll, look, we'll see who can lay the biggest patch of rubber. In your wife's car. 20 years later. Let's do it. Okay. In his wife's car. Hey, Tim. Yeah. Oh, this is a stick. You can't drive a stick, can you? All right, I'll try. In his wife's car. American, and you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. And now... Hey, Rocky, watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat. Again? Nothing up my sleeve. Presto! <laughs> no doubt about it. I gotta get another hat. Now here's something we hope you'll really like. Okay, listeners, welcome. You're tuned into Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I'm your show host, Robert. Run your computers and Google Tantalk, 1340.com, and you can see us live here in the studios in downtown Clearwater. Don't forget to check out our website, GolfstreamMotorsports.com, where you can find out all about us. And if you've missed any of our past shows, don't forget to check out our website and go to the archive page, where you can listen to all 400 and a whole bunch of shows. Anyway, good evening, everybody. Uh, no special holidays, other than the fact that uh, I think we're a couple days away from Halloween. So, uh, happy Halloween, everybody. Let's go right to the Florida Car Show Minute. Yeah, you know what's going on this weekend? Well, starting this weekend, starting uh, actually Friday, but uh, officially Monday, is SEMA. Yeah, you hear me talking about SEMA all the time. That is the event of the year if you're into hot rods, cool cars, muscle cars, customizing or anything like that, because that is where... The Special Equipment Marketing Association and everybody and anybody that's who's who or wants to be who's who in the world will show up. 250 to 300,000 people show up for this event. It's the second largest convention in Las Vegas. 2,900 vendors. That's a lot of vendors. 2,900 vendors. North, North Hall, Central Hall, South Hall, upstairs, downstairs, outside, everywhere. Uh, if you are in the car biz, you can get a pass and get in to see what's going on at SEMA. It's strictly B2B, although on Saturday, no, excuse me, Friday, Friday afternoon, at noon, they open it up to the public. And uh, you guys would just be absolutely amazed and stunned. Anything and everything you see on TV, anything and everything you see in magazines and publications, on the Internet, in print, and uh, in the sky, is to be found and seen 
at SEMA. So, you know, pretty amazing stuff. But, uh, and then also this weekend, we've got, uh, if you're up in uh, North Carolina, is Hilton Head Classic Car and Antique Concourse. That's taking place. Pretty cool. Pretty amazing stuff. Last weekend, they had the Savannah event, the SVRI Road Race. Uh, also last weekend, they had the Las Vegas Concourse, which I would love to bend to that. But uh, I'm doing fine just to get to see if I can get there next week. And let's see, on the 9th, which is next week, 9th and 10th, you got Bug Jam over in Dade City. And on the 9th and 10th, you've got the Cigar City Concourse in Oldsmar. So if you want to find out more about what's going on in the car world in the state of Florida, definitely check out flacarshows.com. And that's where you can find out where all this stuff is going, taking place. Itch, 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 itch. I got a couple scratches here. Anyway, oh yeah, that's right. I forgot. You guys can see me on the video. I was, I was for many, many years just hiding in the little old studio, studio by myself. And, uh, you know, now I got to watch out. I got two cameras on me. Well, one, I think we have YouTube, and the other one is Facebook, which apparently is not cooperating this evening. So, having said that, jump over to YouTube and you can see us live. You can see me live. Actually, you can see uh, my production engineer sitting in here with me. He's trying to get this Facebook thing to work on this uh, contraption here. I guess they call it a computer. That's what they call it. See, I'm a mechanical kind of guy. And that means if it's got gears and levers and switches and knobs and, you know, pistons and things that go up and things that go down, things that go kaboom, you know, I'm pretty good at that kind of stuff. Round and round and everything like that. But uh, computers, uh, it's kind of like... You know, well, it's it's in the air, you know. I'm kind of like, hey, where is it? At any rate, uh, let's see. What did we do this last weekend? Well, this last weekend on Saturday, we had the downtown all of Safety Harbor blocked off so we could have the all-British sports car show. So, naturally, myself and uh, Miss Moneypenny, which is our 74 MGB promo car, promotional car, was there. Uh, along with a lot of other British cars. Morris Miners, we're a good friend of mine, Mike Rookman, had his car there. Uh Let's see. What else? He had his MGB there as well. Another friend of mine had his Jaguar there. Another friend of mine had his uh, Jensen there. Another friend of mine had his Triumph there. A couple of buddies of mine had Heelys. My good friend Kenny had his Morgan there. And uh, I would love to have that car. Actually, we talked about this car last, last year. So for the last year, I've had the Morgan Blues. Morgan's a pretty cool car. If you remember the early 50s uh, MGBs, MGTCs, MGTDs, MGTFs. Um, they're kind of like a really low-slung kind of car, very very, very British-looking. And uh, Morgan's a cool car. They've been around, geez, since the 20s, I guess, you know. And uh, they really, since the 30s, really haven't changed much. So even to this day, they make Morgans. They've made the, you know, uh, radial engine uh, or the V-engine, V-twin engine, like motorcycle engine, little three-wheelers. And then they got the four-cylinder engines. And then they use Triumph motors. And they use Ford motors. And then they use Rover V8 motors. And then they use Ford two-liter motors. And all kinds of cool stuff. But a Morgan's a pretty cool car. Kind of a classic piece. Not to mention there was a few Jaguar E-types there. There was 120 there. There was uh, Morris Minis, uh, Morris Miners, a Mini Miner, Mini Coopers. I'm getting ahead of myself here. Uh, let's see what else was there. No Aston Martins. No, was some late model Aston Martins and late model Jags. They were there as well. Um, the early type Jags, sedans, the S-type. Or not necessarily S-type, but uh, Mark IIs. Um, what else was there? Triumph TR4s, TR6s, TR3s. Even Dennis was there. Dennis, I uh, um, can't think of his last name, but he used to restore cars. He had a, a rolling chassis there, which was really cool because you could actually see what a restored rolling chassis looks like with the four-cylinder and a transmission hanging out of it and the rear end in it. And it was rolling around on wire wheels so with nice rubber on it. Pretty cool piece. 
Anywho, I think what we're going to do right now is I'm going to have Tommy fire up the stereo. I'm going to play a little music for you. And then we're going to come back. Uh, this evening, we have a very special guest. We're doing part two of the interview with the legendary car designer and automobile designer and photojournalist, uh, formerly with Carol Shelby and Shelby American Pete Rock. So, hey, you tune into Nostalgic Radio Cars. Here's a little Eagles for you. Outlaw Man. You got it. Don't touch the dial. We'll be right back. Enjoy the best brews in Tampa Bay at Dunedin Brewery. Known as Florida's oldest microbrewery, they are always working to create a unique variety of craft beers for every taste. In addition, Dunedin Brewery features a full menu, including everything from their famous wings, burgers, salads, flatbreads, and more. Don't forget about their live music, including the Wednesday Night Players Jam. That's Dunedin Brewery, 937 Douglas Avenue in downtown Dunedin. Visit them online at dunedinbrewery.com. Looking for car shows? Then look no further than FLACarshows.com. On your computer or on your mobile device, FLACarshows.com is a comprehensive list of automotive events plus videos and news articles. Whether you're looking for car shows, cruise-ins, meetups, automotive festivals, cars and coffees, or anything else relating to an internal combustion engine, then this is a site for you. Check it out online or on your phone at FLACarshows.com. Okay, we're back, and you're tuning into Nostalgic Freedom Cars, and I'm not sure, but I think I might have got this uh, Facebook thingy here, or this computer thingy here, working, so I'm not sure. Uh, Tommy will tell me in a minute here whether I got it right or not. Anyway, um, I guess, like I said, we're going to have uh, a part, we're going to do part two, an interview with the legendary Peter Brock, and uh, the guy's got an amazing history, super talent. In fact, speaking of talent, I have to digress here for a second, because I was, <laughs> I was talking to a friend of mine, and uh, they were at one of the races here a couple weeks ago, and... Um, You've heard this expression before. When somebody like, hits the wall, they ran out of talent at that point. Okay. So anyway, having said that, uh, the Peter Brock is uh, – actually, I met him in 1995. We were at the Shelby American Convention in uh, Atlanta at Atlanta Motor Speedway. And, of course, me being a uh, – um, 
parts junkie. I was, you know, preoccupied in the swap meet area. In fact, I was, you know how you, you, I tell people this all the time when you go to swap meet. Speaking of swap meets, this weekend is the uh, Cars and Coffee Reason for Motor Cars and also uh, the swap meet over there at uh, Sumter County. And then for you musical guys like me, um, the Tampa Bay Musicians Swap Meet's over in Tampa. So just Google that. So that's kind of cool. And uh, so it's called the Tampa Bay Musicians Swap Meet. But anyway, so I was at Atlanta, and there was a, you know, you, everyone, I tell people this, when you get to swap meets, I, this, is, this is why I fly solo when I go to swap meets, because I'm chasing parts. And if I chase parts, what happens is, is I uh, have a tendency to do very well. If I'm sitting there talking to somebody, then what happens is, is I invariably get sidetracked and distracted. Well, there was a carburetor I found there that was, had a part number, it started out SK. Now, typically on a Shelby, it's S. Um, it's uh, SFM, SFM, 6S, 5S, 7S, whatever, okay? So at any rate, um, what happened was there was this one, the, and the prefix on it started SK. XK, st- S as in Sam, K stands for sketch, okay? And XE is experimental. So this had an SK part number on it, and I thought, hmm, that's unusual, because normally sketch is like a sample part, okay? And then it goes to XE, which is experimental, which becomes a full-blown part. So both of these are prototype parts. And nobody seemed to know much about it. I had an inkling on it, so what happened was is I left for a few minutes, ran down to go you know, quiz some people about it, because I, I should have just grabbed it and bought it, and I didn't. I just kind of um, walked around and... Uh, and uh, started asking questions, trying to do some research, which you can't do. You know, when they use the expression, knowledge is king, um, this is for real. Knowledge is king. You know, when you go there and you have a hunch, just act on your hunch. Okay, go on your gut reaction. If your gut tells you to go jump on it, buy it, whatever, then do it. Well, I regret that to this day, but I do know that I was reading an article not too long ago, and that particular part, which I could have bought for 75 bucks, was the asking price, probably could have got it for 50 okay? Um, and to put it in perspective, going Shelby carburetors at the time were two, three hundred dollars. That carburetor is worth twenty five hundred bucks today. Yeah. Oh well. So you win some and lose some. Not that I would have gotten rid of it. It's just that it would have been in my uh, my stash of stash of stuff that I'll never sell until I'm dead. And then my wife's going to go ahead and you know either junk it, have a garage sale, or something of that nature, which is everybody's biggest fear. So. Anyway, having said that, uh, so the something kind of swap meets this weekend. But anyway, so it was 1995 at the Shelby American Meet when I had an opportunity to meet Peter Brock. And uh, we've been kind of acquaintances uh, for a couple of years there. And then I saw him again at 1996 when we were at the Shelby Meet in Lime Rock. And then again, probably subsequent, all the Shelby meets after that. And then some of the races. And we've been friends ever since. And uh, I've been to his house in Las Vegas. And it's just a super, super, super swell guy. So anyway... We're going to take a break here. Tommy is going to fire up that stereo one more time. I think we got a little mamas and papas coming up here for you. And since uh, Pete and I are both from California, here's a little California dreaming. Of course, right now it should be California's on fire. But anyway, this goes out to all of you guys up in uh, Marin County. So, uh, hey, you're tuning into Nostalgia Radio Cars. We'll touch the dial. We'll be right back.
racing is important to me. I live well. Racing is... It's life. Anything that happens before or after. Just waiting. Flat out. What is so important about driving faster than anyone else? Michael? Be careful. This isn't just a thousand to one shot. This is a professional blood sport. And it can happen to you. Then it can happen to you again. I won the World Manufacturers Championship in the Ford Cobras in 1965. And you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Okay, we're back, and you're tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and it's time to uh, welcome everybody back for part two of my interview with a legendary automobile designer, photojournalist, author, and all-around just swell guy and a good friend of mine, Peter Brock. Peter, how you doing? I'm doing good. How are you doing? Pretty gritted. Pretty, pretty, pretty good. So how was the Las Vegas Concord? I gotta, I gotta know. It was an amazing event. Uh, we had some really, really special cars out here, and I think that uh, Stuart Sobeck, the guy that put it on for the first time, did an amazing job because he, uh, he tried to make it a special event, even with a uh, tour right down the strip uh, on uh, Sunday morning with all the uh, cars that wanted to come. So we put on a, a very, very sort of special Las Vegas type event, and then we had a big gala on the Friday night before the thing. I, they must have had 2,000 people in there, uh, and uh, some great entertainment. So I thought it, it went off very well for the first event. Super. Um, did I? I was reading some of the articles on it. Was your was the prototype Stingray there? The race car. No, no, we didn't have the prototype Stingray there. Uh, actually, we had several Corvettes. There was actually a concept car uh, that originally uh, belonged to Monkey Knudsen, uh, okay. which was, I think, a second, second place winner. And then there was a, just a 100-point uh, 63 split window that won the, the uh, first overall class in it. But there were some beautiful, uh, really old Mercedes cars and and uh, Isada Franchini's, and, you know, some great classics, uh, which you don't get to see very often. Well, you know, i got to say that you and I are kind of spoiled, because, you know, we go to Monterey, we go to Amelia Island, and some of those places, so, uh, you know, um, those cars are definitely, definitely uh, extremely rare, extremely historic, in my opinion, and, and just very ornate, 
uh, and beautiful cars. And you're right, you don't see those cars very often. And that's really about the only places you're going to see them is as a concourse and some and places like that. What other concept cars showed up there besides the the Corvette, the Monkey Newton car? You know, um, I'm trying to think of uh, just going back on whatever, because I was so involved in uh, some of the uh, uh, other events setting up there that I didn't get to see everything that was there. Um, But uh, I think uh, there are a couple of Chrysler uh, concept cars uh, that were there. And uh, golly, I'm just even trying to think of some of the stuff that really stood out. I was so impressed. There were so many uh, early production cars that I had not seen. Uh, really interesting stuff. Like, I mean, there was like a a four-door uh, Packard limousine from the 50s. that I I think they only made 50 of them. I think they were a presidential type thing. So those were the type of things that uh, really got my attention. Uh, there were things that I've not seen at any of the other concours and that uh, people out in this area of uh, collecting uh had there this is an amazing car town here in, in las vegas there are a lot of uh, private collections that are uh sequestered and some very interesting cars and i mean, and you don't get to see them unless they put on an event like this so it, it brought out quite a few when you go to some of these events and you travel around the country and travel around the world as a car designer yourself what piques your interest i mean are you more of a nostalgic kind of guy, and you get into that, or does the modern day stuff uh, intrigue you? I mean, what are, what are your what are your tastes like? Well, I'm 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 very interested in history. For example, there was one car there that I had seen earlier at the Quail that, that I got just a little bit of interest in, and then I got back here and I started doing some research on it. But actually, it it was the most successful American back car that ever ran at Le Mans. And this is a car that was uh, uh, put together uh, with the executives from the Nash Motor Company and Donald Healy. And uh, what happened is that Donald Healy had come to the United States uh, sort of like Sidney Allard did in the early days. I'm talking early 1950s, uh, looking to see if he could buy engines from General Motors for uh, the special Nash Healy's that he wanted to bend. Anyway, uh, General Motors turned him down, so he was on the boat going back. And he happened to meet uh, the CEO from Nash and told him about the story. And Nash got interested and said, well, look, I'll, I'll back you up on this deal. And uh, so they got together and they built a couple of cars. And in 1952, they ran this Nash Healy. And it finished third overall be- behind the two 300 SL Mercedes and ahead of Cunningham. Now, this was, you know, long before any Americans had, had ever done any sort of, uh, you know, uh, engine swapping things. The first guy to do it, of course, was Allard uh, with Mercury's and the early V8s and the, and the Allard's. But here was Nash that nobody's ever heard of and finishes third overall at Le Mans. And the other really interesting part of the story is, and talking to the guy that owned the car, is that the car was actually leading the race there and was going to win and for some reason it was pulled in and held for 20 minutes now i don't know i'm going to try to get the whole backstory on this the car was held for 20 minutes by the aco and the mercedes went on to finish one two and then they let it back out and he finished third overall interesting that is the most bizarre story i've ever heard 
and yet he's absolutely certain that he says he's got the documentation to prove it. So I'm I'm really on this story. I've got to find more out about it. Well, then but that was probably uh, yeah. Go ahead. No, I was going to say that could rewrite history a little bit, couldn't it? Oh, absolutely. But of course, there are all kinds of interesting things that happened. Uh, for example, in 1965, uh, you know, the, the 1965 was so fascinating because at that time. It wasn't the prototype cars, even though they were the fastest cars at Le Mans at that, year, at that time by a few seconds. The big interest from the media and the public was that all of the factories were involved. You had the Ford Motor Company was there for the first time with the GT40s. You had Shelby with the Daytona Coupes. You had Jaguar with the factory E-types. You had Aston Martin, of course, with their special 212 uh, prototypes, and, of course, Ferrari. Uh, was there with their GTOs. Now, all of these factories are competing for the overall, so this is far more important than the fastest cars, the technically fastest cars, which are running in the prototype class, which were the Ferraris. So Ferrari brought 12 cars, 12 factory-back cars, to run against 12 Ford Motor Company-backed cars. So we had all of the Daytona Coupes, we had, you know, Ford GTs, everything. And through a major screw-up at Ford, uh, they had demanded that uh, Shelby build all the engines for these cars and that they use all Ford parts in them. Prior to that point, all of our engine builders had used all the best special hot rod parts from all of these small uh, suppliers over Southern California. But the, uh, the director of racing at that time was a guy named Jack Passano, and he demanded that all of the engines that we build up for Ford be used with Ford parts. Well, the only problem was that they didn't know that the supplier to the uh, head studs to the Ford Motor Company had not properly heat-treated these head studs. So all these engines were built with, with bad head studs, which caused the cars to blow head gaskets. And consequently, we only had 11 cars finished. All the Ferraris blew up and a privateer car finished with Maston Gregory and Yock and Rent. Now, those were the two main drivers on it. The problem was Maston Gregory couldn't see in the fog at night, so he had Ed Hugus, a friend of his, step in the car and drive it for two hours, which was technically illegal, but they ended up winning the race overall. So there are all these funny backstories wow. that you never hear about until later, but actually, uh, uh, the winning Ferrari was uh, uh, technically illegally driven. So, it, you know, it, obviously now at this time, they're not going to disqualify the car. But those are the type of things that, that happen, and you learn about them later. And I think this is another story, this one with the Nash Healy's. Interesting, interesting. Now, were you there in 66? What was the true story? Because Ford won... Was it one, two, three? But there was an issue there because there was two Fords, and then Ken Miles was in the Shelby. Was he ahead of lap? Was he behind the lap? Did they make him stay back? I mean, can you can you reveal now, that? Ken, Ken Miles was Ken Miles was a lap ahead of everybody in that race. Okay, and he was he was the certain winner of the race. At that point, they decided from Ford because they're the main sponsor. They said they wanted to have. All three cars 
the two cars behind can uh, finish as uh, three cars, three abreast across the line. So they signaled Ken Miles to slow down and wait for these cars to catch up because they were so far ahead of the rest of the competition. So when the three cars were coming up against the line, Bruce McLaren sped out in front just a little bit and crossed the line first, and they gave him the win, even though Ken Miles was the real winner of the race. Then they went back and said, well, we actually measured the cars from their starting position on the grid, and he was 30 feet back, and therefore he didn't win. So it's a lot of controversy on who actually gave the order on that, whether it was Henry Ford or the people in the press, and then they gave the word to Shelby to give the word out there, but that's all going to come out uh, in a uh, sort of a fantasy movie that we're going to have come out here in mid-November called Ford versus Ferrari. So you will you will see that, that they are actually trying to give some credit back uh, to Ken Miles because he was the actual guy that led and should have been given the credit for winning Le Mans. And he would have been a three-time champion having won a course at uh, Le Mans and, uh, you know, Monza and Sebring and Daytona. Uh, he was just an absolutely wonderful, great driver, and really a fine person. I got to ask you this question, and uh, since we're live on air, and uh, Tweedy used to be buddy buddies, uh, was always telling us Ken Miles stories, and he said that I don't know who gave him the name, but he used to say, "Yeah, Ken Miles had a nickname. It was Sidebite." Is there any truth to that? Yes, it is oh, true. Oh yeah, no, everybody called him Sidebite because he talked out of the side of his mouth. It okay. was just a, 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 a thing, uh, you know. He just uh, he. he, he it, it was an interesting because he had a very English accent, uh-huh. and he sort of talked out of the side of his mouth. So guys called him Sidebite. Okay, so that story's true. Okay, good. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, everybody sort of called him Sidebite. You know, um, I, I I really want to talk a little bit more about you, but it sounds to me like we're going to have to do part three because there's just these stories are just endless <laughs> and they're great. But let's talk a little bit about some of the stuff that you did because you left Ford or Shelby. And then you started working on, what, a Toyota project or something like that overseas in Japan? Or how did you get hooked up into that deal? You were do- well, doing these little Japanese cars. Yeah, well, it all started, uh, you know, at that era, uh, we're, we're talking uh, about 19, uh, oh, let's see, 1967, 68, something like that. Um, the f- Japanese cars at that time were pretty much junk in the United States. Several of the companies had come over, and at that time the Japanese were building cars under license from the French or the German or the British, and uh, they had gotten their older designs. And they these cars were designed for running in Europe. They weren't designed for running on the American freeways. So they were a sort of old, long-stroke cars. So when you have a long stroke in the engine, you have a very high piston speed. So when you try to run a long-stroke engine on the freeway over here, the piston speed is so high that the cars tend to overheat and have problems. And since the cars were not very well built at the time, um, all these Japanese cars, and I mean all primarily at that time, it was Toyota and Nissan that were trying to come in over here, uh, were not doing very well. And, And the Japanese cars had a very sort of poor reputation. 
And at that time, there was a company in Japan, and they're still in business now. And they're called Hino, H-I-N-O. They're a, a huge builder of trucks and buses. They're sort of the Mercedes of the Orient. If, 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 most people don't know it, but you think of Mercedes as automobiles. But they are actually an even larger builder of trucks and buses. So anyway, Hino had a small group of enthusiasts within their uh, company that thought that they could build a high-quality car. And I'm talking Porsche quality is what they wanted to do. Is They wanted to build a Porsche-quality car because they built very high-quality diesels and stuff. They wanted to come over to the United States and see if they could sell a high-quality car. Now, at that time, they didn't have a high-quality car. All they had was a very cheap little Japanese uh, car uh, that they put out uh, that was based on a, on an early... Uh, Renault, a four-cylinder Renault, you know, with a water-cooled engine in the back with swing axles, which was, you know, really pretty badly engineered because the weight was in the wrong place. It had swing axles, which was pretty, you know, awful driving. But anyway, they had these little 900cc cars, and uh, <clears throat> we had, uh, you know, there was kind of a pecking order in Japan with all the manufacturers, and none of them would run against another, so each manufacturer ran in a different class because in Japan uh, it would be uh, a matter of losing face if you lost to another manufacturer. So consequently, they all politely didn't race against each other. They would race and then they would have privateers and all these other cars and they would go out and, and race. And of course, they had the fastest cars so they could beat the privateers. So every manufacturer could, quote, win. <coughs> now, Hino wanted to get in this game, and uh, they uh, decided that, uh, to make a long story short, that they would send uh, an American guy that was racing one of their cars to the United States and bring it over to my shop, and I would prepare it for him, and we would run it here in the, in the United States in the sedan races. And now I've got to go back and give you a little backstory as well. Um, we're talking... Uh, you know, early, early 60s here. So what's happened is that the FCCA did not have any sedan racing at that time. But the biggest and the most advanced thinking in sports car racing at that time was in Southern California. So we had a separate club here in the Los Angeles area called the California Sports Car Club, which is now part of the FCCA, but at that time they weren't. Now, at that time, the SCCA had no professional racing. If you took money for racing, you were banned from the club. They wanted to have all these Olympic standards so that uh, it was a considered an amateur gentleman sport. Well, the guys in California were all realists. A lot of them were, they raced midgets, they raced, you know, out at Gardena, and uh, they were all professional racers. And they liked sports car racing. So they started racing sports cars out here, and guys were paid money and got professionally built cars. And we had some really top top owners out here, John Edgar and Tony Paravano, and they bought the latest Ferraris and Maseratis. And they had the top guys like Shelby driving the cars and everything. So the racing was really an important thing out here. Uh, now the SEA was kind of falling behind, and the guys on the East Coast, had to, if they wanted to race with the real guys, had to come out to California and, and race out here. So some of the best racing was going on 
between some of these under the under the table paid amateurs from the East Coast uh, against some of the guys that were paid out here on the West Coast. So anyway, the uh, the Times Mirror decided that they were going to have a big race out at Riverside. They backed putting in this beautiful track out at Riverside Raceway. And they were going to have one of the big first professional races in the United States, and it was the Times Mirror Grand Prix. And they put up a lot of money. So this attracted people from Europe. And really, it became the biggest money race in the world at that time, paying more than Formula One. So at that time, you had Formula One drivers, you know, like Jack Brabham and Sterling Moss and all these top guys were coming over here with the latest factory cars to run. So at that time, another interesting thing happened in terms of history is that Shelby bought one of the very first Cooper Monaco's, which normally had a two-and-a-half-liter Climax engine in it, and we put a Cobra engine in it. So this was sort of the first supercar that became the Can-Am in a few years. And uh, we put... Uh, uh, was that the King that Cobra? Car out on the, yeah, this was the first mid-engine Cobra. They called it the King Cobra because right. obviously in 1963 we had won, uh, you know, the United States Sports Cars Professional Sports Car Championship. It was the first professional money race or series that the Sports Car Club of America had been put on. It, it was their way to sort of uh, recognize that racing was really going professional. So at any, any rate, at that time, we built the first mid-engine supercar, and we called it the King Cobra. And uh, we won that very first race at the Times, Times uh, Grand Prix. And this was a big change in racing because now every big, everybody started to use American V8 engines. Uh, Lotus built one, Cooper built one, Brabham built one, you know, and several guys like Huffaker and Sadler here on the in North America built cars and it this all led into the into the Can Am which started around nineteen sixty eight officially, but you know, this is the direction that things were going. But anyway, to get back to this thing about the Japanese cars, and to decide that they were going to have an opening event for this Times Mirror Grand Prix, the uh, California Sports Car Club decided that they would have a race for sedans, because they've been allowing us to run these little sedans out here in, in California. We had Mini Coopers and Lotus Cortinas and Sobs and, you know, all of these little foreign cars, Renault, all of the guys that didn't have money to buy the best or latest sports car, you know, you could go buy any little, you know, foreign sedan and build it up and race it. And we had uh, great fields out here, so it turned into a very popular field. And, of course, the SCCA didn't have any class for this at all. So the only place that you could race it was in Southern California. So the Cal Club decided to have an opening event called the Times, uh, they call it, see, the Mission Bell 100 is the name of the race. Uh, and this was just, you know, as an opening event for the Times Mirror Grand Prix. Now, we had a crowd out there of about, any, depending on who's uh, you listen to, it's someplace between eighty and 130,000 spectators at Riverside Raceway. This was really a big, big race because people had come out to see all the top stars from Europe and everything racing. The other thing that happened, as I mentioned, the Japanese weren't doing too well in this market, so they sent all of their marketing people over to this race to see that the way Americans used auto racing to promote their automobiles. So 
they didn't expect the fact that Hino, a brand that was not considered a very well-known brand in Japan because there was Honda over there and there was Nissan and there was, uh, you know, Toyota, uh, Isuzu, uh, you know, all the popular Japanese names were racing over there. And at the bottom of this pecking order, as I was saying, because they didn't race with each other, was this little company called Hino, which had this funny little 900 sedan. Well, because we'd been successful racing that car in uh, in California, they decided that they would go ahead and build a really beautiful little car. Uh, they went to Italy. They hired Nicolotti to do the body on it and built this beautiful little car called the Contessa 1300. And they were planning on importing that car to the United States. But before they would do that, they sent two of those cars over to me for me to prepare and test and see how they would work out as race cars. Well, I knew that the Times Mirror Grand Prix was coming up with this Mission Bell 100. So we prepped two of these cars specifically for that race, knowing that we were going to run against all of the well-known brands out here. And, of course, we had, you know, tons of Mini Coopers and Lotus Cortinas, which were the fast cars. And, as they say, Saabs and Renaults and NSUs and, you know, every little Volkswagens were out there. Everything was out there. It was a really fun field of cars. Well, as it turned out, anyway, um, I won that race. And my partner, uh, who had been my contact in Japan, I put him in the second car. So we finished 1-2 in this race in, in front of, you know, thousands of people. And when I pulled into Victory Circle, I was surrounded by hundreds of Japanese with cameras. I didn't know where they'd all come from, <laughs> but they'd all come over to see this marketing program in the United States. And to their surprise, a Japanese car wins this race. And they were absolutely out of their mind with it. I mean, it hit the headlines in Japan that, you know, Hino wins Riverside Grand Prix. We were bigger news in Japan than anything else that ever happened and elevated Hino's status uh, in the world of Japan and totally changed the way uh, all the Japanese manufacturers looked about how they were going to go about racing. So at that point, uh, the only thing that was selling over here in the way of Japanese vehicles was pickup trucks because they could, Toyota was selling all their pickup trucks to the Japanese gardeners. So they were selling, you know, pickup trucks, you know, it was the only small pickup truck on the market. And the only people that built more pickups than, the, than, the, than Toyota in Japan was Hino. Hino was owned 15% by Toyota. So Toyota went around and picked up private stocks every place they could and did a, a financial takeover in stock and absorbed Hino. And as soon as they did that, Toyota cut off the, you know, race car program with the Contessas and said, okay, now we're going to hire Peter Brock to race our cars. So they came to me with a contract to race the 2000 GT Toyota, which is a beautiful car. I mean, it's just an absolute gorgeous car, but it was going to be pretty expensive. So at any rate, uh, I signed the contract. Looked pretty good deal. I went out, went into Hawk, bought a dyno, set up my whole shop in El Segundo, and the cars never showed up. And I'm sitting there, and I'm calling, where are the cars? And they said, well, we're, you know, they're delayed, whatever. Well, what had happened is that the year before, 
Shelby had won the last race. This is 1968-69. Had won the last race with the GT40s at Le Mans. And Ford said, okay, we've won Le Mans three years in a row. We're going to quit racing. So they told Shelby, we're done racing. You're on your own. So Shelby's got a full shop ready to go and no cars to race. So he's asking if his chief financial guy and a guy named Barry Galloway says, Barry, what are we going to do? we got a whole shop, crew, everything, the finest racing team guys. We've just won Le Mans three times in a row. What are we going to do? And Barry says, buy a Toyota dealership. Shelby says, is that a good thing to do? Barry says, that's the future. Buy a Toyota dealership. He says, well, fine, go down to the dealership or down to the distributor there and buy one. And uh, we'll put one up here in El Segundo. So he goes down there, and, of course, they are really impressed that Shelby's going to you know, put up the Toyota dealership. So they invite Shelby down there, and, and Shelby, of course, says, what are your plans for racing? And, of course, they admit that they had just signed a contract with me to go race their 2,000 GTs. Well, of course, Shelby put a wheel under me, and he talks him into getting the contract and giving it to him. Now, Shelby's at the peak of his career. He's just won Le Mans three times in a row, and Toyota has just signed a contract with a guy that nobody's ever heard of, which is me. All I've ever done is won, and he knows. So they decide, well, really the smart thing to do is we'll really give this contract to Shelby, and we won't tell Brock what we're doing. So I'm sitting around twiddling my thumbs while Shelby gets my contract. I didn't have any money to sue him or didn't even know about what was going on until finally one of the guys from Shelby's calls and tells me what's going on. And I'm really completely surprised. I said, well, there's no way. I said, I've got a signed contract in my hand here, and I'm supposed to receive the cars. He says, well, I got news for you. The cars are here under more secrecy than we ever had in the Ford GTs, and we're building the cars for the first race of the season. I said, okay, I understand. So cold, I went sort of across the street, so to speak, to the uh, Toyota or the Datsun distributorship and asked to see the president of the company. And they said, well, of course, you can't see the president of the company. You know, who are you to ask to see the president? And I said, well, I've got this plan. I want to go racing. Who in this company here is in charge of your racing program? And they said, well, we don't have an official racing program because we don't have cars that are any good. And I said, well, you've got some nice two little roadsters. Why aren't you racing those? And they said, well, we've got a couple guys racing, but the cars aren't very good and they're not very successful against the, you know, the British Triumphs and the, and the German Porsches and stuff. So uh, we're not into racing. And I said, well, you should be in racing. And I said, Toyota's coming into racing. And I said, I can take those cars and make them winners. Well, sorry, we don't think that's really a very good idea. So thank you very much. Goodbye. Pete, we so are... I was sitting out on the... We're huh? we're up against the clock right now, so but this but we're going to pick this up. There's going to be part three because now this is the beginning of B R E Brock Racing Enterprises, right? Right. Yep, that's correct. Yep. Super. Well, Pete, again, I want to thank you very much for taking some time out. Stories are great. They're endless. <laughs> they're beautiful. No, seriously. I mean, it's just like this is kind of like an ebook. Oh, this is real. You know, real time. But anyway, I want to thank you very yep. much. Uh, hopefully, I'll be out there in Seaman or yeah, Vegas next week. We'll see you um, uh, at Seaman, obviously. Uh, 
some of the other functions that are going on. And again, let's pick. Let's do part three. Might be in a week or two or something like that when we get back. And I'd like you to continue the okay. story, and because it's very, very, very fascinating. And in the meantime, if you find out something more about that Nash Healy, bring that up as well. I'm going to be searching that whole story out. But anyway, the records are there. It finished third overall at Le Mans in 1952. You can look at the records. Mercedes was 1-2. Nash Healy was third. And Cunningham was fourth. But nobody ever heard of, of the Nash Healy's. It's just amazing. And these are the fastest cars and should have won the race. So, Excellent. all right. Talk all right. to you later. On that note, thank you very much, Peter. Appreciate it. Have a good one. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yep. Hey, I want to thank all my listeners for tuning in to Nostalgic Indian Cars. Don't forget, every Tuesday night here on the Tantalk Radio Network for the most fascinating and legendary names in motorsports. Don't forget to check out our website, golfstreetmotorsports.com. Find out more about us. Tell your friends. I want to see you at some of the car shows. And in the meantime, everybody stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family. WTAN, Clearwater, FM 106.1, WDCF, Dade City, FM 102.3, WZHR, Zephyr Hills, FM 104.3. Listen.